If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Nehemiah chapter one, but we're going to be kind of moving through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, we're just so excited as we get into this next part of defining moments and how uh, there's a great work to do and it needs to be done together as a group and as a team. That's what Nehemiah teaches us and that's what we're going to get into. And before we do that, let's pray for God's blessing. God, just bless us this morning as we get in your word. Uh, We cannot thank you enough for the men and the women um, as we read the Bible that have sacrificed their lives to give us life through your word. We thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you for his ability to lead in a crisis and um, to be sold out to you uh, with every breath that he had, that that mattered more than anything else in his life. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So thankful last week uh, for Nate's message. Nate Manny preached on uh, through the book of Ruth and told that wonderful story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, uh, the kindred redeemer. And I, I love uh, from Ruth 1, 16 and 17, where Ruth says to Naomi, where I go, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you uh, are dwelling with God, I will dwell and I will live with your God and make your God your my God. Where you die, I will die. Even where you're buried, I will be buried. So last week, the defining moment was one of what? Total surrender and commitment. Well, what we're going to get in today with Nehemiah is a commitment, but it's commitment to each other. And what we can do together is always greater than what we can do by ourselves. And so it's going to be an important time as we talk about what Nehemiah teaches us. And before we get deep into that, you need to know a little bit about this guy, Nehemiah. First of all, as you read through the book, you need to understand he wrote this book, okay? So he's writing this straight from his heart. He's uh, writing this around 444 BC, and the location he's writing it from is really important. It's right in the heart of Persia, which is enemy territory. He is an Israelite. And in the, in the midst of this enemy territory, he's at the capital of that called Susa, and he's working for a king, King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes and here's what he does, and this is pretty interesting. Uh, he's going to, as we're going to find out, he is the cupbearer. Now, before we get to the cupbearer, I want to tell you something that's really important about what world was like for this amazing man, Nehemiah. He has his brother and his brother's friends, and they come to him. 600 miles they travel. So if your brother shows up and he lives 600 miles away, uh, you know that's probably going to be a big deal. And it was a big deal. And he he sums up the situation clearly in verse 3, and he says, I'm coming from Jerusalem, which has been destroyed basically by fire. Now, there's a picture here I'm going to pull up here, and it's, uh, it's from the wildfires in California. Uh, actual picture. Now, the reason I chose this picture is it's called, uh, and I love this, uh, uh, before and after. This was taken, and isn't that how life is? I mean, you look to the right, and it's just beautiful, and then you look to the left, and it's just nothing but destruction. How many of you have ever been affected in your life or your family's been affected by a fire in any way? Anyone? Okay. You know what that's like. Um, Some of you have heard the story at Sherwood Oaks, and I remember 
that fire that uh, took out Sherwood Oaks and walking through the church, uh, walking through my office and seeing all of the, the rubble and the destruction. And, uh, and I remember gathering in this prayer circle the first day and uh, Tom just was really choked up. He was so moved by how many people had come uh, to help. And uh, it just, it was heart-wrenching. I was talking to somebody about that the other day. It's interesting uh, that was there that day and as we cleaned up from the fire. And they said, what is your memory? What, what's your first memory when you think of the fire, John? I said, well, it's not a fun memory, but uh, the, the worship minister time was George Ross. He came up to me and he said, hey, John, good news. Neither one of us left, left the coffee machine on. And I really was wondering. I did. There was in the back of my mind, I'm so glad that I didn't start the fire. So anyway, uh, Billy Joel, I did not start the fire. Okay. But so many of you know what that's like, and you know how your life is affected by a fire. Now imagine what you love more than anything else. And here's Nehemiah, and what he loves is his home country. And he sees that the walls and everything around the walls has been destroyed. And then there's this random verse in verse 11 there in chapter 1, and he says, I was the king's cupbearer. Now you read that and you go, oh, big deal. He's a cupbearer. I mean, he's, he's just what, like a Tupperware salesman. I mean, what does that mean? He's a cupbearer. But now you need to step back and realize what that means. For an enemy king, the most valuable, priceless, valued relationship that he has is with the cupbearer. It is the most trusted person in his life. Do you know why? Every meal the cupbearer eats with the king. So imagine all of the conversations. Oh, by the way, he does one more thing. Anybody know what the cupbearer does? He drinks the wine first to see if it's been poisoned. So in other words, every day when he wakes up, he realizes, I'm putting my life on the line for this man. You've got to trust that man. So that shows you the character of Nehemiah. In enemy territory, he's climbed the ranks to he's the most trusted guy. I was thinking the only position that even comes close to that, I was trying to think, what even comes close in the world that we live in today? And it would be uh, the bodyguard who protects the President of the United States. Probably the most famous bodyguard. His name is Clinton J. Hill. Maybe some of you have heard of him. And what made him so famous is, if you look at those iconic pictures, he was the bodyguard right behind the car when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. He was the first one to get to Jacqueline Kennedy and push her back into the car. And he said he died, the rest of his life, he died with regrets that there was a split second he wished he'd have been just a little bit more on the ball. Now, there's nothing he could have done. But he said, I always had this regret. But you notice what he did the very split second that he heard the gunshot. He didn't react like, oh, I got to run away from the fire. What does he do? He runs to the car. Okay. That's the heart of Nehemiah. I'm willing to die for this king. So when we talk about Nehemiah this morning, we're going to look at his passion. We're going to look at his purpose and how he pulled together a team to do a great work. And there's so much to learn. A lot of you love to take notes. And one of the things that I'm excited about is we're going to start posting every week the outline from the previous week's sermons. And we'll also, if there's a, some quotes and challenges, we want to put that on there just so you've got that. But if you are taking notes, here's a quick way to remember, I think, the whole book of Nehemiah. 
is we're going to talk about the man, chapter 1. We're going to talk about his mission, or the mission, which is Nehemiah, chapters 2 through 5. And then the true mission accomplished, which is Nehemiah, chapters 12 and 13. We've got to cover a lot of ground, uh, so buckle up. Here we go. First of all, what about the man, Nehemiah, verses 4 through 9, chapter 1? What about this man? Here's what he says. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive. Let your ears be open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. Let me just pause there. This is such a powerful prayer. And again, if you're taking notes and sometimes you want to put them in the margin of your Bible, here's something to remember about his prayer because it needs to be in all of our prayers. Did you notice in verse 5, the very first thing he did is he showed reverence for God. He didn't immediately jump to, hey, God, I'm, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a lot of trouble going on in Jerusalem. I don't know how I can possibly get there. And he didn't do that at all. What's the very first thing he did? He put God in his rightful place. I think that prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he lifts up his eyes to heaven, and what does he cry out? Holy, holy, holy. God, you are holy. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, what's the very first thing? Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. So we always put God in his rightful position. Um, I say a prayer before I preach, uh, uh, and I cry out to God for help. And, and one of the things from the time I was a senior in high school in public speaking, that's my first prayer, and I've done it ever since. And in that prayer is always, God, you and you alone are worthy of worship. You, and you, and you got to put God in his rightful place. Because if you don't, your prayers are going to go, crazy. They're going to go all over the place. And you hear people say, I, just never, I don't feel connected to God. Well, you're not going to feel connected if you don't put him where he belongs. He is holy and he is mighty and he is reverent. I love it, the title. He says, oh Lord God of heaven, great and awesome. And then he repented to God. Boy, that's big. And did you notice he said, Lord, I'm so devastated because of what's going on in my country. Not the country that he's serving, the country that he belongs to, where he was born. He knows the city's in rubble. He knows that it's been destroyed by fire. And he knows why it was destroyed, because they were so disobedient to God. But do you notice what he does right after he cries out for his country? He said, I confess to the nation's sins and what? My sin. Isn't it easy to cry out to God for other people's sins? Lord, will you fix? Fill in the blank. And I think so many times God wants us to repent from our own lives first. And then what I love in that prayer as he talked about in verses 8 and 9, remember God. 
231 times in the Bible we read that word, remember. Remember God's word. Remember, and I love this, that you are never out of reach from God. Nobody here today is out of reach from God. When you cry out to him, he's not a billion miles away. And he doesn't hear a word you say. No, he's with you when you cry out to him. He loves you. That's why, to be honest with you, uh, I don't know if you've had this conversation. My guess is some of you have. Uh, Are you worried about our country right now? Because if you're not, I'm not sure where you've been the last four or five months, but I'm telling you, it, it can be stressful when you see all the things that are going on. And everybody is kind of trying to find the solution. So I gotta be honest with you, I don't have a solution other than God. And so I want you to mark this down, it's on your little card, but September 20th, Heather's working on a worship and prayer night right here. And that's part of what we're going to do. We're gonna cry out to God and pray for our country and we're gonna pray for one another because that's where it begins, on our knees. So that's September 20th and so I want you to mark that down. And now I wanna talk about his mission. Once you know a little bit about Nehemiah and his heart and his passion as he cried out to God, he had a mission. He knew that God was calling him back to Jerusalem. He knew he had to go to the king. He knew how hard it would be but he went to the king knowing that his life would probably be on the line by uttering those words, will you allow me to leave? Will you allow me to go to my homeland? And the king allowed him to go. And his mission was very simple. He was gonna do whatever it took to build back those walls and to build back the gates of the city, the great city of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, follow with me. Here in chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Then I said to them, I love this, do you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come and let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding So they began this good work. So what is this huge project in front of them? What's the mission in front of them? Now, if you've ever for years heard about Nehemiah and the wall, if you're not careful, you just picture this one solitary wall that he's going to restore. Folks, it was a city that was devastated. We're not just talking about a wall. In this project were 10 gates that were damaged or totally destroyed. Now, I'm not going to share all 10 gates, but let me just give you three of them, just so you get an idea of how important they were to Jerusalem. There was a sheep gate, and this is where they brought all the animals in. This is the food that they would eat, but it was also to be used for the temple sacrifices. This is where this gate was actually prayed over and sanctified because of the sacrifices. There was the fountain gate. This one is so cool. This is their water source. This is where in the New Testament you find the pool of Siloam of the miracle of Jesus. This is where Ezra, the priest, would read scriptures publicly. And then there's the east gate. Wow, this one's so cool. It's also called the golden gate. And it led to the temple. And this is the gate that Jesus entered on Palm Sunday. 
you begin to understand the significance of these gates. So he's crying out to them. We have a mission, and it is amazing. We have to rebuild. Now, I'm going to, I guess it's because the American flag, I'm going to share with something I do love about America and living in this country. Um, and we talked about fires and destruction. This is just an observation. I've been to other countries, and if I'm, if I'm wrong, you can talk to me afterwards. I don't think I'm wrong, okay? I've been to other countries, and I've seen a lot of destruction that just sets around for a long period of time, and they don't always seem to be in a hurry to just get it back and restored. In America, I'll just tell you, in general, when something gets destroyed, you know what they do? They cry for a while. Some people drink. <laughs> But you know what they do? They rebuild. And let me tell you something. That's something that I love. We had a, a huge tree that blew over in our tree. We had a storm that uh, took out a lot in our neighborhood. And uh, I've got the, just incredible neighbors that just pulled together. Hey, I'll, I'll cut this down. I'll move this. I'll do that. I'll do that. And I'm looking at all the yards. And I mean to tell you, a week later, you'd never know that there was a storm. Why? Because that's in us. I think it was in the Israelites. And I think that's what Nehemiah needed to say. You've got a mission, but you've got to quit whining and you've got to quit complaining. You have to get ready to rebuild. And when he began to put this process together through all of this devastation, here's what he did that I loved. And you definitely want to jot these down because I love that. It. It's such a powerful book on leadership. If you really want to get into Nehemiah, just read over and over Nehemiah chapters two through five. And I'm telling you, there's a goldmine of leadership principles. So let me just share with you what his strategy was to rebuild. First of all, he got a small group of people together. Did you hear that? A small group of people. He didn't ask for public opinion. He got a small group of skilled people. And he said, we need to assess the damage. Isn't that always the hardest thing to do? We've got to determine just how bad it is. We know it's bad, but we need to actually draw up a project punch list. We need to do everything we can to assess the damage. And it's so important that they did this up close and personal. You notice Nehemiah didn't send this 600 miles away in a letter back to his brother. He said, I will be there, and I'm going to walk among the rubble. And that's what a leader needs to do. Have you ever worked for somebody and you go to your office sometimes you go, does that individual even know what I do? Do they even walk at all where I walk? Now, I know none of you had those complaints before, but then that annoy you. But you ever had a boss that you know is right there with you? There's something about up close and personal compared to virtual. Would you agree? If, if I never hear Teams or Zoom for the rest of my life, I don't care. You know what I'm saying? Some of you that are living in that world right now, and here's how you know virtual is not as good as up close and personal. Have any of you had a virtual doctor's appointment yet? Anybody? Tell me that isn't weird. Like I, I'm standing there looking at my doctor, and he said, how you doing, John? I'm like, I guess you're looking at me, and I'm looking at you. I guess we're doing all right, you know, and what do you weigh? Pick a number, doc. You know, I mean, it's just the whole, you know, it's just, it's just the craziest thing. And I'll be honest with you, I cannot tell you how much I've missed you. I just, I can't even explain how much I miss seeing you and being with you. And I know virtual is important, and I know live streaming is critical. I know for so many churches, it's what kept the churches alive. Don't, that, don't get me wrong. 
but there's something about just up close, personal. And after he, he drew out the assessment of the damage, here's what he did. In Nehemiah 2.20, he laid out a vision. He said, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. No more meetings. We go to work. And we roll up our sleeves. And I tell you, nothing drives me, there's probably nothing drives me more crazy than too many meetings before you ever get going. So there are times when you've got to stop meeting. You ever been there? And you've got to get going. Milton Berle, any of you younger than 60 have no idea who that is. <laughs> so uh, I'm just going to throw out a Milton Berle quote, and you can look up who he is. Okay. He said this, a committee is a group that keeps minutes and loses hours. Can I have an amen? amen? Yeah, be careful of too many committees. You notice they assess the damage, they drew up a detailed plan, and then he's like, God is with us, roll up your sleeves, and let's go to work. And then this is the leadership principle that I love. Nehemiah taught them to multitask. They were workers and they were warriors. Now, let me share what I mean by that. Nehemiah 4.17 is there were enemies. There were enemies outside of the camp, and there were actually enemies inside the camp. There were those that were complaining, and there were those that wanted to take them out, but they had to keep rebuilding. So what are they going to do? You know what Nehemiah said? You need to multitask. In one hand, you have a tool. You are a worker. And in the other hand, you have a sword. You are a warrior. You're a worker and you're a warrior. And every day, you've got to be ready for both. I think that's the call for all of us. We're all called to be workers and we're all called to be warriors. And you never know what day you're going to be putting on which hat. There are some days you're a warrior and it's spiritual warfare or you've got a friend or you've got a family member and they are struggling and that is your day. That is your struggle and you're going to do whatever it takes to help them. And there's other days... You're a worker. You roll up your sleeves and you say, what is it going to take for us to rebuild? Folks, that's why today, uh, Marie and I, we butched the announcements, but I hope you did at least pick up the spirit of what? We're moving forward. Things are going to happen. And uh, you need to get ready. And we're going to challenge you to roll up your sleeves because great things are coming if we have that attitude of being both a worker and a warrior. And then last of all today, I want to talk about the true mission accomplished. Nehemiah's chapter 12 and 13. First of all, Nehemiah 12, 31. I love this. It says, I had the leaders of Judah go on top of the wall. And I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on the top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. Now, I'm just guessing of those two choirs, that one probably wasn't the best of the two. I'm just saying... Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, you guys, Dungate. Okay, so anyway, but what I love is the celebration. Uh, they completed this whole project. Are you ready for this? In around 52 days. They built up the gates and the wall. They, they did an amazing work. And you know what happens when you finish a project? You celebrate. Don't ever miss that pause to celebrate. I mean, you celebrate. For example, how many school teachers do we have here? Okay, here's what I learned about school teachers, and I learned this also about camp counselors. I used to be at church camp all those years, and I always wondered on the last day why the 
the counselors were always in such a good mood. Like we were crying, I'm gonna miss you so much. How come the faculty never cry? Now I know, I went on, I've been on the other side. Did you ever wonder as a kid, I wonder on the last day of school what the teachers are doing. I bet they're in their rooms just crying. And then you realize they are having a party. Okay, why? Because when you finish a project, when you finish something tough, you need to pause and you need to celebrate. And here's what I love, he said, here's how we're gonna celebrate. You're gonna go up on the wall. I'm gonna bring up all the leaders to stand on the wall. And I want them to relish this moment. I want them to look around and see all the workers, the warriors and the war. I want them to see this is through God, what you're capable of doing. Man, I would have loved to have been there with the music and the singing. And it says they had this amazing offering of gratitude. There was worship. It says there was purification where people were crying out to God saying, we want to be right with you. Man, what a day that was as they stood on that wall. It's important that we stand together in victory during those times. You probably remember this in the news. Uh, and it was an amazing uh, thing that happened here. And it was uh, flight 155, uh, the U.S. Airways plane. And it was called the Miracle on the Hudson, January 15th, 2009. Do you remember that? And Chelsea uh, Sullenberger, uh, Chesley, my bad, Chesley, who is called Sully for a reason, uh, had them all standing out there so they would level out the plane. you remember that? In essence, that's like standing on the wall. Can you imagine that? As they're standing there, they realize it's bitter cold, but we just survived. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Other than to say that there's nothing greater than to stand with a team or a group, and you've fought hard together, and you've cried together, and you've bled together, and you've worked together, and you look out and you see what God potentially can do. You are on the top of the wall, my friends. You're on the top of the wall. You don't get that rush in life by yourself. You don't get it. You don't get it. Uh, they used to say in sports, you want to build a championship team, you better have pile divers. You know what a pile diver is? You know when they win a championship, those piles of humanity? You want those folks. Because once you have that rush, you, you just can't imagine. Well, it's the same thing in the church. When you've worked side by side with others and to see what God can do, and I wish I could end the sermon right there to say, and the Israelites had this amazing project and this mission, and it ended on this high note and the bold music and blah, blah, blah. No, no, because they're humans. And that's why you have chapter 13. After this great project was just blowing everybody away and they'd reconnected with God, you know what the nation of Israel did? Nehemiah went back to being a cupbearer and they went right back to their old ways. Isn't that sad? And Nehemiah came back. Daddy's home, you know, and he comes back and I listen to the very end of Nehemiah 13, 30 and 31. This is what he said. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task, I also made provisions for contributions of wood and designated times and for the first fruits. And then he paused and said, remember me with favor, my God. 
In other words, Nehemiah comes back, he goes, okay, remember the project with the walls and the gates? Do you remember that day when we stood on the wall? The project wasn't what it was all about. It was your hearts is what it was all about. Claudia Mitchell says this all the time, that you never use a person to get a project done. You use a project to get the person done. And that's what Nehemiah said. God could care less about these. He could have snapped his fingers and you'd have new walls and gates. He could care less. It's that you came together and you put God in his rightful place. Now, you need to put him in his rightful place right now. And then his last breath, did you notice what he said? He doesn't care what everybody else thinks. Lord, remember me with your favor. In other words, Nehemiah is saying, nothing else matters than being in favor with God, to be right with God. So what's in your life right now? I mean, what is it right now that feels like a wall, that feels like such a struggle that you need help for? What is it you need to work with other people to get done? And selfishly, what are you willing to do in the months to come to help us on the west side? And by the way, this is what all ministers are crying out for. Folks, we've never seen anything like this, but together with God, I truly believe that anything is possible. There's an old hymn that I found. It's by Oscar C. Eliasson, and it's called uh, Any Rivers. Just listen to the chorus. I love this. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible, and he can do what no other power can do. What's the rivers right now that you're struggling with? What's the tunnel you need to get through? 